Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 23 through 31. The Bible says, And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all, and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold, now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. Amen. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2 and noted the two pillars of early church life in this revived Christian community, this on-fire, spiritually-filled Christian community. And we notice in Acts chapter 2 that these disciples were continuing daily in the temple. And we identified that as corporate worship, an absolutely essential part of any Christian fellowship. Corporate worship. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is. But we also noticed the second pillar, and breaking bread from house to house. Community engagement, community fellowship, continuing daily in the temple with one accord, and breaking bread from house to house. We talked about the, I think, the prevailing idea in our, uh, in our circles that we know all about corporate worship, and we really do. We meet regularly. We, in fact, that we're meeting here even on a Sunday evening, I think speaks something in our at least modern church culture about the importance and the priority of corporate worship. And yet, the question for us is, are we meeting the second pillar of the example of that spirit-filled community in breaking bread from house to house? And we asked whether this example that they left us was a cause or whether it was an effect. In other words, was this simply an effect of their unity They loved each other, they were spirit-filled, they were engaged with one another, they were of one accord, and therefore, not only did they want to meet corporately, but they wanted to meet from house to house as well. And we agreed absolutely it was an effect when the Spirit of God brings unity. There is a warm heart of love that engages us with one another, and we want to spend time with one another, particularly united around Jesus Christ. But we also decided, I think, that there was something of a cause, a causative effect, whereby not only their united corporate worship, but also their united community fellowship was something that engaged and supported their unity. And the reasons for this is because we saw the example of Jesus himself. 
how often Jesus used private houses as his way stations for ministry. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. Whether that was his disciples. So uh, at more than once in the Gospels, as we noted, Jesus speaks publicly in in, in parables. And scripture says when they were come into the house, then Jesus explained everything to them. There's an ability to do individualized teaching in houses that is a different kind of teaching than even the public proclamation of God's word, which we know is essential and necessary. And we also pointed out the the challenges in our epistles, the commands to exercise this kind of house-to-house fellowship. We not only see Paul's example saying, I taught you publicly and from house to house in Acts chapter 20. We also see the express command of 1 Peter 4. Use hospitality to one another without grudging. And that Greek word, hospitality, using hospitality, literally means be a lover of guests. Be fond of having guests into your house. This is a requirement. Titus 1 in 1 Timothy 3 for being a church leader. Do you want to be a church elder? You need to be fond of guests. You need to be a lover of having people over to break bread at your house. This is a non-negotiable requirement for Christian leadership. And so we saw that the New Testament approach, Jesus' approach himself, is not only to engage as a church body in corporate worship, how essential that is. We should not step away from that as a priority, but an equal or at least a strong and, and consistent focus on the kind of breaking bread from house to house. Well, this week, I want to go one step deeper as we continue to look at the New Testament pattern for this kind of house fellowship in which we encourage and challenge one another in the ways of God and make disciples and be disciplized ourselves. And the passage that I'd like to reflect on for that tonight is here in Mark chapter 10. What I'd like to point out tonight is that in this wonderful passage, Jesus is making a promise. A promise to those, not just his disciples of his initial 12, but to all of us, as he says, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels, but he shall receive, here's a promise, he shall receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, don't miss that. He shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. I want to reflect on this promise specifically as it relates to our houses. In what I'll title, My House a resource. My house, a resource. And I want to look at three aspects of this passage in light of the broader New Testament teaching as, first of all, a promise made. A promise made. Notice again, this is a promise. If you leave house, brethren, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands, for my sake in the Gospels, you shall receive a hundredfold now in this life and in the life to come, eternal 
life. Now, what's the context here? As we say all the time here, we can't truly draw applications from Scripture unless we have first properly situated it in its context and understood what the Holy Spirit is saying in that context. Here in Mark chapter 10, if you were to go just before it, you would see the very famous story of the rich young ruler, a man who comes to Jesus asking what he can do to inherit eternal life. Jesus begins probing with some diagnostic questions and ultimately reaches the central point of tension for him in his relationship to God. And it is his relationship to money. Jesus tells him, he confronts this openly. He says, you one thing you lack, go sell whatsoever thou hast, give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. And at that saying, this man, this young man was deeply grieved and away he went walking away from the salvation in Jesus Christ and notice what Jesus says in verse 23 he says to his disciples always looking for a lesson always looking for a way to teach how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God now I think sometimes we let this verse fall on deaf ears in the most prosperous society that humanity has ever known But yet Jesus says it just as truly to 21st century Americans as he did to 1st century Jews. How hardly shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? And they were astonished at his words. How much more would 21st century or should 21st century America be astonished at his words when so much of our broader American church culture is so focused on opulence, is so focused on wealth, He's so focused on building up large palaces, if you will, and large objects that we must be so careful do not become uh, uh, simply symbols to our own wealth and not to the work of God within us. And Jesus answered and said to them, children, how hard it is is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And there again, he is explaining exactly the problem. The problem is not the riches in and of themselves. The problem is that we so often in our riches are led to trust on them in a way that makes faith in Jesus Christ almost impossible. Jesus says how hardly it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure. Their jaws had to be picked up off the floor. Why? Because they said among themselves, who then can be saved? You see, if you're a Jew at that day and age, and wealth is an unmistakable sign of God's blessing, wealth is the sign that God is pleased with you. And now Jesus says, those rich people, how hardly is it that they'll get into the kingdom of heaven? They look and says, well, what what chance is there for us if God's people of blessing can't even get in? What about us? And Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. What is he saying? He's saying only a divine miracle can make someone stop trusting in riches and start trusting in a living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. It is a divine work. It is the work of the Spirit within us that makes this possible. And praise God for that in a land in which likely every single person sitting here would be viewed as extraordinarily wealthy in this own day today, not to mention across the scope of human history. 
Now, notice where we move from then. Peter begins to say to him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. Peter wasn't one for subtlety, was he? Peter was the kind of guy who got up and started speaking and his mind caught up a little bit later. It's not very hard to track exactly where Peter is going. And Peter is saying exactly, Jesus, if this is so hard for rich people to get into heaven, well, what about us? We have left everything. We are impoverished just like you. And Jesus in his grace doesn't correct him. He says, verily I say unto you, I'm going to encourage you here, Peter. There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. And on he goes. What is the promise here? The promise here is simple. Jesus is saying, if you leave your resources for my sake, you will receive abundantly beyond what you left behind in this life. Now let's puzzle about that for a moment. What on earth could he be talking about? He can only be talking about one thing. You'll get a new family. Did you leave behind a mother? You'll get a hundredfold of them, mothers. Did you leave behind siblings? You'll get a hundredfold of them, siblings. Did you leave your house? You'll get a hundredfold houses. Now stop there for a minute. What's he saying? He's saying you in the family of God will come into a sense of possession of someone else's house. Of someone else's mother. Of someone else's sister or brother or land. Someone else's resources will become, in a real sense, yours. That's the only way the logic hangs together. A hundredfold, the resources you left behind, you get in this Life, And of course, as we see in the light of the gospel and of the epistles, we see Jesus bringing by the spirit of God into one family of God by which it has been proven true across history that those who have abandoned their own resources, their own human resources, have found the great hundredfold resources that Jesus is talking about here. So here's the promise made. And secondly, I want us to consider the promise fulfilled. And I want to start with that early church life. Acts chapter 2. Again, remember what we focused on last week. Corporate worship. Essential. Breaking bread from house to house. Essential. Now, in what way was this promise fulfilled in the early church? Well, put yourself in Acts chapter 2. How many people have just come to Jesus Christ in one day? 3,000. Not only that, Scripture says God continues to add to the church daily those who should be saved. Are you considering that? So what is he saying when they're breaking bread from house to house? When they are engaged in this kind of regular, consistent fellowship in each other's houses, what is happening? Well, on the one hand, the people who are leaving their Jewish communities are leaving everything behind. They are leaving their church behind. They are leaving their family behind who don't come with them for the cause of Christ. They are opening themselves up to great persecution, economic persecution, cultural persecution, social persecution, and indeed physical persecution. They are abandoning what they have known to this point. 
And what do they receive in Acts chapter 2? They receive more than a hundredfold of houses because they're all breaking bread from house to house. They're all living life together. They are all experiencing not just in corporate worship, but in this kind of community fellowship. They are experiencing the promise of God in Jesus Christ for his church. And I want us to notice just briefly here, if you could turn over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Notice what scripture says here in verse number 32. And the multitude of them that believed, we're talking multiple thousands, were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. So they possessed things, but they did not say that they were their own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses, Do we recognize those words? Lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. What is going on? These people who had abandoned all to follow Christ were now experiencing the fullness of Jesus' promise, a united Christian body that was living out truly this Promise, mothers, sisters, fathers, brothers, houses, lands, united in one Christian family. Now this hits home for me because one of the questions I think we need to ask ourselves and take a very hard look at in our own churches is whether we are living out this example. Whether our churches reflect that kind of family to those who Jesus is calling out now to abandon everything and come after him. I heard a pastor give just a heartbreaking anecdote, and it was one that is very relevant to our situation here in the inner city of Minneapolis. This uh, Christian pastor spoke of a man who was saved out of a gang. And he was in this gang. This was his community. This was his life. And God brought him to be gloriously saved. He was baptized. He was on fire for the Lord. He was just completely engaged in the worship here at this church. And then ultimately, after a period of time, he just noticed that he wasn't engaged anymore. The fire wasn't there. I don't even know, frankly, if he was coming. And this pastor went to him and said, what's going on? What happened? And he said, oh, he said, I made the mistake. He said, I thought the church was going to be like the gang. He said, I didn't know it was just a Sunday thing. And this pastor said, what a heartbreaking thing it was to realize that his gang, in a sense, better reflected the family of Christ than the church did. That his gang, who knew in a sense, as these gangs in this city do, know how to give children who are dispossessed and displaced a sense of purpose, a sense of hope, a sense of community, a sense of organization and togetherness. The Christian church didn't give that to him. 
Jesus had called him to abandon everything that he had left behind, and he was not seeing in that moment the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had a hundredfold of mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters, houses, and lands in this life. And he was discouraged. Friends, let's think about our city for just a minute. We're here in the Phillips neighborhood, a neighborhood where 40 to 50 percent Right here in this neighborhood where this church sits, 40 to 50%, depending on where you look, are below the poverty line. If you go just down the street to Little Earth Community, where we send our buses, I read just a staggering statistic. 98% of people in Little Earth earn the median income of $8,500 a year. $8,500 a year. Nearly 50% of the head of households in Little Earth are unemployed. We think of Little Earth, we think of this broader Phillips neighborhood as well. Three quarters of people in this Phillips neighborhood rent their home. They do not know what home ownership is. We see over near Northside where the number is pretty significant as well. And I think upwards of one third of people there where we send our buses are below the poverty line. What is Jesus calling them to do when they come to him? He is calling them to say, you need new friends. You need a new community. You need a new life, a group of people to live life together with because this group will not support your Christian faith. It will not support your walk with Jesus Christ. Friends, we don't have the luxury in this city of seeing people come to Christ and recognize that they already have a home structure. They already have a church inside their home with husband and, 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 and wife and children who are able to gather around the word of God and engage in faith with one another. There's no such thing. And the tragedy is, if in this church we are reaching out into this city and saying, come in, leave behind everything and follow Jesus, no turning back. And they come in and they say, okay, I've left everything. Now what? What does that say about this promise of Jesus Christ and his intent and his heart for his church here at Straight Gate Church and in the city of Minneapolis? You see, the promise was fulfilled to these dear brothers and sisters in the first century of Acts chapter 2 and onwards. The real question is whether this promise is being fulfilled, not just in this church and in this city, but in churches and cities all across this country and this world. Are people experiencing the hundredfold promise that Jesus has given to them? And that's why, lastly, I want to look at a perspective required. A promise made, a promise fulfilled, and a perspective Required. Let me lay down, I think, what is very much not the right perspective. It would be tempting for us to say, if this is the promise of Jesus, and this is the example we receive in the early church, let's just abolish private property. Let's truly have all things common. Let's live in communes. Let's in, give, give ourselves in this direction, and we'll simply follow their example. Now, private property has not been a very popular subject across some levels of, of uh, political theory, at least. I remember studying uh, this in my undergraduate education and coming across, to my surprise, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 
one of the most influential French philosophers and political scientists, the man whose thinking was the basis really for the French Revolution, in some ways absolutely abominable and appalling. Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote this in one of his most famous quotes. He said, the first man who having enclosed a piece of ground bethought himself of saying, this is mine and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. That was the one who founded civil society, the one who said, this land is mine, and he said people were foolish enough to believe him. He goes on to say, from how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes, filling in the ditch, and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. There's private property even today is not necessarily in all quarters politically popular. We should ask ourselves, what is the biblical idea here? And my suggestion in terms of the biblical example is that this is absolutely not the right perspective. It seems clear to me from our New Testament that God's intent for his church was not the abolishing of private property, was not a kind of solely communal fellowship. And I say that because we see in our epistles some very interesting things from Paul. Have you ever noticed when he's greeting someone at the end of his epistles, it happens in Romans, 1 Corinthians, it happens in Colossians, it happens in Philemon. Do you know what he says? He says, greet this one person. And the church that is in his house. His house. Churches in this early fellowship, early Christian fellowship, were the places not just of community fellowship, but also of corporate worship. And so I do not see as being the biblically required model that there be an abolishing or a, a failure to recognize any lines of public property or private property, I'm sorry. Not only that, we know that it's not God's plan for the future. One of the wonderful uh, promises of the millennium is in Micah 4. Micah 4, 3 has been taken by the United Nations and quoted at least in part on their walls. It's the famous verse that says, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's a wonderful sentiment. But what comes after it is also wonderful. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. The millennium will have private property. It will have people sitting in security in their possession, if you will. This is not to say that there is a demand, a calling for a kind of communist reality for us in which we need to participate in this kind of communal living. But nonetheless, then, what is the perspective? What is the biblical model for thinking about our house as a resource that God intends to allow other people to come into his promise for. And I want to distinguish between two different perspectives, one which will be extremely harmful to us and one I'm convinced will be extremely helpful. And it's this. Is my house, and really more broadly, my resources, is my perspective one of those resources to be secured and safeguarded for my interest? 
Or are they resources to be stewarded for someone else's? Now, the simplest explanation I could give of this to you is if you have a bank account, maybe you have a savings account that is in your name. You are the one who have a right to that savings account. You have money in that account that you own and you secure and you safeguard for your purposes. You are the one who decides what to do with that. But then one day you are assigned to another savings account. It's not your savings account. You are a trustee. A trustee is one who is governed with stewarding a particular property or uh, a particular debt or an amount. And that person has a duty only to act in the interests of who it's being stewarded for. If you have a trust and maybe your child is on the trust, you are the trustee. Every single action you take, every decision you make is not in your interest or you are violating the highest duty that the law provides, a fiduciary duty. Every decision is to be made in keeping with the one whose property you are holding. And friends, that distinction is fundamentally about how God calls us to treat every single one of our resources you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when Paul is, 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 is um, reasoning that our bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we have been bought with a price. And what is the logic he reaches? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What's he saying? Your body's not yours. You have no right to commit fornication. You have no right to violate God's standards. You have been purchased. And therefore, because you are not your own, you glorify him with it. Or think of the, of the proverb, of the story that Jesus told of the talents. A man who receives five talents. A man who receives ten talents. A man, or excuse me, two talents. A man who receives one talent. One, two of them decide they are going to act in their master's best interest by going and investing it and multiplying the resource that has been given. One of them, in unbelief, says, I'm going to hide it. I don't want to take any risk. I don't, I'm going to act in a selfish, self-interested manner. And of course, the difference in their treatment when the Lord comes and sees what they have done with his property is the fundamental point of notice. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then to the other, casting away out of his presence. Now what does that say for us when it comes to the way that we view our own resources in life? Why is this such a challenge to us? And I just want to start for a moment with our houses. This is such a challenge because we are told in every aspect of our cultural dimension that our home is our castle. In fact, under the law, it is. The Fourth Amendment, our Bill of Rights, says, and says in regard to the government, the right of the people to be secure in their, and it goes on to say, houses against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. You remember the Third Amendment saying that the government may not allow someone to, allow soldiers to be quartered in your house except under the uh, due course of law. And this, has come, this goes way back to the 1600s and even before in the English common law. Doc, um, uh, uh, Lord Samuel uh, Cook, one of the great old jurists, was the one who wrote, 
No, he said that the house of everyone is to him as his castle and fortress, as well for defense against injury and violence as for his repose. And that principle has continued on today. In fact, in this state and in many other states, there's such a thing as a castle doctrine. You have no need to retreat for your own personal safety any farther than your own house. You can stand in defense of yourself in your own house. You see, the house for us is such a sacred place. It is a place which, if we own a house, is probably will be the, what we spend the most on of anything in our life. It will be the biggest purchase we will ever make. It is the place where we can retreat. It is the place of security. It is the place of love and connection in our families. And it is the place of a kind of prosperity. And you see, that is exactly why I'm convinced this matter of hospitality, this matter of opening our, our houses and our resources in the way that Jesus has called us to is such a challenge because everything that we are hearing and even what we are feeling is to say, this is mine. This is for me. This is for my family. This is for my rest. This is for my security. This is where I go. I will go out of my house to minister to people. But I must be, be so careful to protect who comes in to my place. You see, what does a perspective say when instead of saying this is my place for my use and my purposes, we adopt the kingdom perspective that says, God, this is your house for your purposes and for your use to disciple and minister to people in your kingdom. And we could ask ourselves that question about any resource we have. Is that the way that I look at my money and steward it? God, this is all yours. I will give and use it for your purposes and however you call me to do it. God, this house is yours. However wide you want me to open my doors, I'll do it if it's for your kingdom purpose. What I'm suggesting to you tonight is that when we approach it from that perspective, that biblically grounded perspective in which Jesus says the resources of his church, of his body, will go toward meeting the needs, the deeply felt needs of those who have left all to come after him. We ourselves will be fulfilling the promise of Jesus Christ to his people. Now let me ask you this, how is this possible? How is this possible for God's people to have this view, this perspective on their own resources, whatever they are, but tonight particularly in our houses? And I want to suggest to you tonight, we can't disconnect what was going on in the early church at Pentecost from this kind of radical liberty that they had from material possessions and their own resources. Do you remember what Jesus said? How hardly shall a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven? And the disciples say, how can anyone be saved? And he says, with God, it is possible. What was he saying? There's a divine miracle that liberates you and me from our obsessive holding on to what is ours and a perspective that says, I cannot let it go. There is a divine miracle that allows me, that enables me to, to turn away from trust in riches, to turn away from security in my material possessions and be able to live a life of generosity and an open hand 
toward others that truly allows me to be a lover of guests, a fond of those who I can make a difference in their lives for the kingdom of God. We cannot disconnect this radical liberty that the early church had from the work of the Holy Spirit in reviving them. You see, friends, I just want to make this connection for all of us, myself included tonight. Walking in the Spirit is not just about the fruits of the Spirit that we see. It's not just about a certain way of living as we relate to, shall we say, standards or worship or other things. It's not simply a walking in the Spirit about how we view the Word of God and our prayer lives together. All of those things, of course, they are part of it. We need to see that walking in the Spirit also looks like a radical change in the way we relate to material possessions. A radical change in our security a radical change, dare we say, in our faith. This is where we tie back into where we've been in Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith, as we've said, substantiates what I do not see in the future. It makes it real to me. It is the evidence. It proves what I cannot see with these earthly eyes. And what this allows me to do in a way that my neighbors will never understand is when I live my life, life truly for a kingdom purpose in the way I use my house and I use my other resources, my, neighbor looks, my neighbors look at me and say, they see something that I don't. They live something that I don't. In fact, Hebrews 10 makes a very related point. Verse 32, the author of Hebrews is telling these beleaguered believers, he says, but call to remembrance the former days. In which after you were illuminated, after you came to faith, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. You were taken advantage of, he was saying. Now listen to this. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. How many of us get robbed and take it joyfully. How many of us lose our material possessions at the unfair treatment from others and say, God, I can rejoice in this? And he tells us why. Why did you have compassion of me and my bonds? Why did you take joyfully the spoiling of your goods? Knowing in yourselves. What's that? That's faith. Knowing in yourselves. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. And he goes on to say, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Don't cast away that faith. And friends, the, the example of us, not just in Acts, not just in Hebrews, but throughout the life of the Christian church should be such a rebuke to our modern church's approach to material possessions that focuses, I fear, on more on the safety and security in my interest and far less on the eye of faith that says there's a kingdom purpose. There's a kingdom of God that I, that he has called me to use all of my resources to support whatever the cost and trust that I have in heaven a better and enduring substance than any uh, monetary, any physical possession here on earth.
Friend, is that your conviction this evening? Is it mine? Do you know in yourselves that if you were to give today, God would call you to give everything that you have? You know in yourselves that you could do it joyfully because you have a substance in heaven that's waiting for you. You see, if I don't have that conviction, I'm not going to be able to open my house. I'm not going to be able to open my hand in generous giving. I'm not going to be able to do it because my perspective is going to have me focused here on what my possessions can do for me here. I want you to imagine if you owned a business or you do own a business and you had a warehouse that was sitting empty. Maybe it was 5,000 square feet. Maybe it was 10,000 square feet. You had this significant amount of space, amount of resource. I promise you what you would be doing is you would be saying something like this. That building is costing me something. That building is empty space. It's resource that's being unallocated. It should have a profitable purpose. It shouldn't be leading to my cost side of my ledger. It should be on the benefit side of my ledger. What can I do to fill up that building, to use the space that I've given? And friends, why don't we as Christians have the same thought? God, have you given me a house? Have you given me a place? Have you given me a bank account? Why, am I, why would I let it sit there empty? God, how can I allocate it more for your kingdom? There's something that's awaiting for me, a better substance in heaven. Let me use it for your purposes. Let me not squander it and leave it on my cost ledger. That is the eye of faith. That is the heart of faith. And friends, it is the heart, may I suggest, that overcomes all of our challenges that so get in the way of how we radically use our material possessions. Friends, I could be the first to say, my excuse, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. My house isn't big enough. My house isn't nice enough. It takes too long to clean. I'm too tired. I've got kids to raise. I've got this to do. I've got that to do. I simply am not at the stage of my life where God has called me to use this. And friends, the eye of faith looks over all of those obstacles and says to God, well, God, given all these obstacles, what do you want me to do? And then moves forward exactly what he says. You say, if my house isn't so big, maybe God doesn't want me to host big gatherings, but maybe he wants me to host one person and disciple them in my home. Maybe my house isn't the one that I can accommodate things every day of the week. Maybe truly my schedule is full in many things that God has given me. But if my eye of faith sees what God has for me in heaven, can I look and say, where is my calendar clear? Where can I make my calendar clear to give the kingdom of God to those who desperately need it, to fulfill Christ's promise to those who are abandoning all, to walk away, who desperately need to see and to feel the kingdom of God and the family of God. See, what I want to suggest to you and to all of us, and perhaps most importantly to me tonight, is that this kind of kingdom focus, this kind of kingdom perspective toward my material, my material resources is the best balance I can possibly find. You see, it's easy for us, I think, to have an objection come in at this one point. Are you saying that my front door should always be open? Should I never have time for my spouse? Should I never have time for my kids? Should I always, just always be pouring out? 
But you see, when I have a kingdom perspective, God tends to bring that into balance because then I realize that my spouse is in the kingdom too and that I need to minister to my spouse. And so sometimes I'm going to say, the front door of my house is closed tonight. I'm ministering to my spouse. And my children are part of my kingdom purpose. And so therefore, maybe we discern at some point, no, this week we're investing in our children. The front door is going to be closed, but we have a kingdom purpose here. But friends, at other times, that means our front door has to swing open and we have to say, kids, let's all come together. Let's all come together and minister and show love in the resources that God has given us in this space. No, I don't, I don't pretend to give all the answers. The Holy Spirit is the one who can give you and I that. The Holy Spirit is the one who knows how to balance all of these kingdom purposes in a way that truly will bring honor to him and our material resources. But my fundamental question tonight is, are you ready to look with the eye of faith and say, Spirit of God, change the way I look at my material possessions. Change the way I look at my resources. Allow me to fulfill your promise to your disciples in a greater way. I'm ready to be a mother. I'm ready to be a sister. I'm ready to be a dad. I'm willing to offer a house. I'm willing to offer a land. I'm willing to look at the resources that I have as a part of God's kingdom purpose. Friends, my house and your house, my money and your money, our resources, our resources to be used for the kingdom of God. And may God enable us with the eyes of faith to look ahead, not to our security in the riches and the possessions we hold now, but an eye of faith to what God has for us in the future and the liberty to be generous in how we use his resources for his kingdom purposes. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the spirit of God. Father, your spirit liberates us. Your spirit liberates us to live the Christian life, to get victory over sin. And Father, one of the ways that we need to get victory over sin, perhaps, is with a wrong perspective.